Hey, thanks for choosing Brainwaves. After the episode, take a look at our iTunes archive for other great content, and check out our new website at brainwaves.me. Now, on to the show. Osmotic demyelination syndrome, previously known as central pontine myelinolysis, is a rare but terrifying condition of the central nervous system, where susceptible regions of brain tissue are stressed to the point of nearly irreversible injury. Half the time this occurs in the pons, hence the term central pontine myelinolysis, but there is some substantial overlap with sites of extrapontine myelinolysis. Today on Brainwaves, I'll be talking with Dr. Joshua Vanderwerf. You remember him from the prior episode on the history of American neurology. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me back, Jim. I haven't looked at this in a long time. <laughs> when was the last time you thought about osmotic demyelination syndrome? Probably when we finished writing this. <laughs> Did we do this last year? It's pretty old. Okay. Let's start by first describing what physicians mean with central pontine myelinolysis and why that term has fallen out of favor recently. Well, as you hinted at, the term central pontine myelinolysis is somewhat misleading because there can be more to the syndrome. Adams first described this sharply outlined and symmetric demyelinating lesion in the center of the basis pontus, primarily in alcoholics and malnourished patients back in 1959. This condition was then known as central pontine myelinolysis because of the most commonly reported location of injury, as well as the fact that it entailed a non-inflammatory loss of oligodendrocytes. Not long after the initial report, it was recognized that similar injury was identified in areas outside of the central basis pontus. These most commonly include the midbrain, cerebellum, the lateral geniculate body, but also the external and extreme capsules, hippocampus, and deep gray structures, as well as the cortex. This led to the term extrapontine myelinolysis. Then there was this autopsy series that suggested that isolated central pontine myelinolysis occurs in only about half of cases, whereas isolated extrapontine happened in about a fifth of cases, and there was overlap in a third of cases. Eventually, the term osmotic demyelination syndrome, or ODS, was coined in order to encompass both the pontine and extrapontine sites of injury, as well as the likely underlying pathophysiology of the condition. So what does ODS look like clinically, and when should clinicians suspect it? Clinically, ODS is described as the progression of an initially flaccid quadriparesis with some dysarthria, dysphagia, and pseudobulbar affect, possibly associated with coma or locked-in syndrome, over the course of several hours to even days. All of these features are attributable to the pontine location of injury. However, in cases of extrapontine involvement, it is recognized that patients may have prominent movement disorders such as Parkinsonism or dystonia, as well as neurobehavioral symptoms, including anything from akinetic mutism and catatonia to severe agitation. So essentially, if a chronically ill patient develops these features, or if you're unable to otherwise explain a lack of expected improvement in a patient after critical illness, ODS should be something clinicians keep on the differential. Now, you mentioned critical illness as a major risk factor here for ODS, but we usually think about ODS in the setting of rapid correction of hyponatremia. How do we think that ODS actually occurs in these patients? Again, the initial reports were in primarily alcoholics and malnourished patients. 
And then following this, there was a flurry of reports that recognized that electrolyte disturbances, mainly hyponatremia, seemed to be associated with this condition. And then it was in the 1980s that animal studies confirmed that the rapid correction of chronic hyponatremia and not the hyponatremia itself seemed to cause this uh, osmotic demyelination. The thought is that the stress of rapid shifts in osmolality in the setting of a chronically hypoosmolar state can lead to the death of oligodendrocytes and therefore the loss of myelin in certain brain regions. Because of this, chronic hyponatremia, which is typically defined as greater than two days in duration, clinicians should not raise the serum sodium in this situation by more than 1 to 2 millimoles per liter per hour or greater than 8 millimoles per liter per day. Keep in mind, however, that these values are based solely on animal models and clinical experience. Many experts maintain that there may be no absolutely quote-unquote safe rate of sodium correction in chronic hyponatremia. However, in acute hyponatremia, which is less than two days of duration, it is considered by most experts to be safe to rapidly correct sodium levels, with the use even of hypertonic saline if necessary. The caveat is, though, that if there's any doubt as to the chronicity of a patient's hyponatremia, one should proceed with caution and correct slowly. Besides in cases where chronic hyponatremia is rapidly corrected, some clinicians have argued that ODS occurs in other cases, like those in patients who are critically ill or have other comorbidities. That's a great question. Uh, From the beginning, it was recognized that it seemed to mainly occur in patients who were chronically or critically ill. So the list of reported cases has grown significantly over the decades and now encompasses a myriad of disorders other than pure hyponatremia. Besides chronic alcoholism and primary electrolyte disturbances, these include liver transplantation, burns, malignancy, pulmonary infections, acute brain injury, diabetic ketoacidosis, as well as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome, hemodialysis, and even AIDS. What's even more interesting, as you mentioned, is that there are several reported cases of ODS occurring without hyponatremia. Although the key driver of osmotic stress is often related to sodium derangements, there are several other potential causes of osmotic shifts. Severe hyperglycemia in hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome is a good example of this. Frustratingly, there are even rare instances of autopsy-proven ODS where no clear osmotic derangement has occurred on typical laboratory data. One hypothesis to explain this is that the depletion of intracellular organic osmolites, such as myo-inositol, in chronic and critical illness affect the brain's ability to adjust to osmotic changes of varying degrees. So this ex- helps explain why the two key ingredients seem to be chronic illness plus an osmotic derangement, even if it's from a less than obvious source. At the time of Adams and Victor's first description, neuroimaging with MRI was unavailable. How has this helped us with the diagnosis of ODS lately? To be sure, MRI is the most sensitive modality we have for detecting evidence of ODS antemortem. ODS lesions are hyperintense on T2, hypointense on T1, and non-enhancing, but may possibly restrict diffusion. MRI is not perfect, however. One problem is that the imaging findings can be delayed up to two weeks. Another is that the extent and location of abnormalities on the MRI do not correlate with outcome. Also, many reported ODS cases are not supported by pathologic confirmation, but are assumed to be ODS based on the clinical scenario and the imaging. Other differential diagnoses should be investigated in these situations, and MRI findings should not be assumed to be a final diagnosis. So those descriptions of an MRI in a patient with ODS sounds very similar to PRESS. How can you distinguish PRESS from ODS in those patients? 
That's a good question, Jim. I'm not sure we have the full explanation at this point in time of why these conditions occur and where there may or may not be overlap. Press definitely can occur in the posterior fossa and even down in the brainstem. So in those situations, one thing we know typically of, of press patients is that the imaging findings over time, as, as the underlying condition is reversed, tend to normalize and doesn't leave any lasting uh, scar in the brain. However, in, in most osmotic demyelination cases, especially in the pons, even if the symptoms uh, or deficits of the patient improve over time, typically they still are left with a, a sizable area of encephalomalacia that can be seen chronically on T1 imaging and, and T2 imaging for the rest of their life. So the imaging in the acute setting between ODS and PRESS can be very similar, and it, it at times could be difficult to tell which is the underlying cause in these critically ill patients. What's the prognosis of these patients, and how do you typically counsel them or their families? Essentially, the prognosis can range widely from death to complete recovery. More recent series suggest that the mortality may be as low as 5%, with about a third of survivors being dependent, a third having mild deficits, and a third having complete recovery. It is difficult to prognosticate which bucket any given patient will fall into. As mentioned, unfortunately, MRI does not help us prognosticate. And since ODS often occurs in the setting of pre-existing chronic, or I should say coexisting critical illness, prognostication uh, obviously should be done in the context of the associated conditions. And as a final word, what would you say is the take-home message here? What should providers know about ODS that you think they may not have known? I believe most clinicians were taught that rapidly correcting chronic hyponatremia is dangerous and can lead to ODS. However, there are a few additional key points that we've talked about that I think everyone should keep in mind. ODS can occur in areas other than the pons, which can lead to the development of movement disorders or neurobehavioral symptoms that we don't typically associate with it. Also, the, the pathophysiology of ODS is incompletely understood, but can happen in the setting of other osmotic shifts that we don't typically think of as being as obvious as sodium derangements. And then lastly, I think clinicians should keep in mind that the patients most at risk of having this syndrome are those who have a, a chronic or critical illness. So I should also mention that outcomes are not always universally bad. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Again, that was Dr. Joshua Vanderwerf giving us a little bit more insight into the manifestations and management of osmotic demyelination syndrome. Thank you, Jim. I always have fun coming on. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Lee Rosevere. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.